Hello again, and welcome to another episode of The Goat Farm. This episode, we're going to talk to Adrian Cockroft. He's a technology fellow with Battery Ventures. But before we get into that, Ross, what have you been up to lately? Geez, more of the same. Just trying to drive this whole DevOps movement at Target, which is has kind of become all-consuming. Excited to take a little break from that for an hour or so, and really excited to be interviewing Adrian today. I know we've been talking about getting him on here for a while, and really excited to hear what he has to say about DevOps and enterprises and microservices and all these cool things that he's focused on right now. So last time we talked, you had talked, and actually a couple episodes, you've talked about this idea of the DevOps dojo. How has that been progressing at Target? That is going pretty well. I, we, so we, it's a, you know, it's a, it can hold up to three, 400 people at full scale and we're still, we're still working on scaling out people coming through, but we've, we've, we've run six to eight teams through the dojo now for some kind of an immersive learning experience on kind of all things agile and DevOps. And so we're, you know, we iterate and we fine tune how we coach and, and how we set expectations with the teams coming in with each one. I think we're learning a little bit with each one that comes through, but by late summer, early fall, I expect we'll have, you know, eight or so concurrent challenges running in the dojo. So, so teams actually in there working, um, bringing their real work in and then our coaches kind of teaching them how to, work differently, how to, how to do things like infrastructure as code and CI and CD and um, how to apply that to the products that they're bringing in. So it's, it's pretty key to how we're pivoting, how we work at Target, but we're still, we're still pretty early on in the journey. So now that you've had a couple classes go through, what, what's kind of the feedback been as people go back into their day job and uh, kind of take these ideas back into how they work on a day-to-day basis? Uh, it's been great. I mean, we've actually seen teams go back and start to even evangelize and coach a little bit back within their own their own space, their own teams. And we're a massive organization, so we can't we can't get to all the thousands of people immediately on on all the all the kind of new roles and new skills that they, they need to work through. I do think you know we're we're going through a lot of of just overall change right now, and and so I think I think we will. I think we'll have a lot more to share on what's working and what isn't over the next few months. It's cool. still been pretty early. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've actually talked to a few people uh, in various places about what you're doing and how your your how Target is trying to build this dojo to kind of take those practices, and especially when it, in relations when it comes to things like um, the whole idea of a DevOps team. Where you're also, mm-hmm. where you, in many ways, have, I guess, a DevOps team of experts that are teaching other people instead of being the ones who are the team who does all of the DevOpsy type things for you in the organization, because that doesn't scale and that's not effective. So in, instead, you're trying to take the DevOps team to make all these other DevOps teams a reality. Yeah, I mean, the, what it really boils down to is, you know, how we're thinking about success and measuring our success is how. How effective are we at booting up these skills in others? And so the, the quicker we can get teams kind of pivoting towards these new ways of working, the, the better job we're doing, which is a, a it's definitely a shift. You know, our, our focus is more on developing kind of the competencies in our organization. And that's how a lot of my, my engineers are focused right now versus just getting out there and being the ones to do all the stuff. 
Right. right. How many people do you have in each team as you train them? We have, it's a mix. Uh, probably on average we have six to seven folks that would come in. Um, usually it's a scrum master, some kind of a product owner, and um, you know, five, or, five or so engineers. I think we'll we'll see as we start to get more scale of, of of products cycling through our dojo. I think we'll 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 see a full spectrum. I think we could even be bringing in like areas that have multiple scrum teams associated to them and, and try to coach coach them holistically too. We haven't we haven't tackled that kind of pattern yet in the dojo, but um, I foresee it coming. You call it a dojo, but at Netflix we did something similar when we were doing the the transition from uh, data center. To cloud, which was really our transition to to a DevOps model, to microservices, to cloud, and from uh, centralized, you know, typically our database to NoSQL. All those transitions rolled into one. And what we did was run boot camps where we take a team and put them in a room for a whole day. And the very first ones were very exploratory. We were actually trying to figure out what works and um, exploring the tooling, working with a very rudimentary platform. And as the platform solidified, we started getting more teams on board um, and bringing in some more teams that were building the applications. Eventually, we were getting people saying, you know, the people building service apps said, okay, we need one big These different teams would come in. And we ran them every month or two for a while. This was when they were several the company we did convert probably we probably actually traced you know, about that number. So it wasn't this wasn't an organization the size of target, but it was a very similar kind of model where you get you a room you get um, okay, my normal workflow is that I'm you know, compiling code that I give this funny Q and build in the general system that runs a second sparkle to I'm self servicing launching my own micro so this, I have to create you know, a Jenkins build that spits out a microservice that spits out an AMI. I need to launch that AMI in the cloud. I need to have a login to it, um, see it running, hide in the monitoring tools, and find out how to, you know, what is the whole process of basically self-serving and getting everything running and figuring it out and working out all of the API-driven kind of uh, operations rather than uh, having a, you know, deploying a jar file into a big, uh, bundle. So that, that was a very similar sounding transition. We went through that, and basically it's all used for onboarding new people. There's a still roughly quarterly of Netflix for new hires to just make sure everyone understands how the platform ties together. You've actually gone further to even tie that into how, or they've gone further to now tie that into how they onboard new people moving forward? Yeah, because once most of the teams are all trained, so when you, when new people come in, they sort of discover from the team what they do, um, you know, generally how it works. But you don't get the bigger picture of how everything ties together. So I'd usually do something similar to the public architecture talks that I that you see me do at conferences. That would be an, sort of an extended version of that, or with, with more internal information would be the first. Yeah, I'd open with that, and. Um, then we sort of go through, you know, how to use tooling, how to use, how to talk to Cassandra, how to do all the different pieces, uh, how the platform works, and have some hands-on things to make sure that everyone's got everything set up correctly, and the laptops are initialized, they were all in the right folder groups, and all of that kind of stuff that gets in your way.
in the room that could actually debug any particular problem you had in, you know, against configured or whatever. Yeah, I've seen this similar model used at a big global SI, which I don't necessarily know if I can use their name, but they're really, really big. And uh, what they're doing is essentially a DevOps academy where they give their consultants the opportunity to basically go and, and learn these different tools. And they have a, a four to six week program where the person can kind of work independently to get ramped up on these tools to understand how these new tools work and then also apply to particular use cases that they could maybe then take out into the field and work with uh, customers on engagements with. Yeah. The way, the way we ran it was we just had a wiki page and you added your name to the page or if you're a manager would add you know, people that were going to be hired to the page and once it hit you know, roughly enough people to fill a room, we'd schedule and then see, okay, if we schedule one here, who is going to make that particular training and who's going to bump to the next one and just move their name to the next one that's going to happen. So it would just pick up, there would be sort of a regular thing that would pick up who was available. Nice. Um, we also did some retraining ones where we went back in. We, we, the Cassandra transition happened later after the cloud transition. So we actually had one that was specifically the people that were already very comfortable using the cloud came back in and figured out, okay, how do we switch from, in this case, simple DB to Cassandra when we moved the system of record out of, out of data center and into cloud? It was kind of a, a new, you know, every time a new technology was introduced, it did kind of thing. It was quite loosely organized. There was no sort of academy thing, and it was really just one day was enough to kind of bounce people into the new world. They could sort of self-service up to that. So, Adrian, many people might already know who you are, but uh, in case there are people who are listening, uh, why don't you take the time to introduce yourselves? Uh, you've already kind of jumped in and started uh, in, with a conversation, but why don't you explain uh, kind of what you've been doing over the last several years, and then also more currently your role at Battery Ventures, and why a technologist sure. like yourself would be working for a VC for firm? Yeah, sure. So jumping in there, it was just interesting to just the dojo. Oh, um, no. yeah, please do. <laughs> so, I um. So let's see. Well, I spent the last year and a half at Battery Ventures, a VC firm, um, and just to sort of quickly wind back and I'll wind forward and explain what I what I'm doing at these places. So I spent seven years at Netflix before that, where I was started off managing a team that was building personalization platform and managing the homepage and building a bunch of different, doing some refactoring and some web service building, and then after a few years, we moved that team, that platform to the cloud and sort of led the, the re-architecture team. And then we formed a cloud platform team and I was the, the overall architect for the cloud platform team across all the other different teams, just trying to keep everything coordinated. So um, before that, I spent a few years at eBay, um, their operations architecture team and their research lab there. And I was, uh, spent a lot of people in enterprise may actually remember the time when I was at Sun Microsystems, keep running yeah. into people that might be like VP of engineering and saying, yeah, back in the day I was trying to tune that Solaris machine and I had your book. So I spent <laughs> 16 years at Sun. Uh, I wrote the Sun Performance Tuning book. That's the one that I wrote on the rack. If you've forgotten, people call it, just remember the cover. Often. Um, and that, that, was the, that was kind of what set me up working with a lot of enterprises actually that's mostly my enterprise experience comes from a long time at sun with lots of big enterprise customers and being one of the sort of key people training field people and uh, writing papers and 
uh, trying to sort of help the field people and engineering get together and sort of build better products. So coming back to Netflix, when we did the cloud transition, um, went through several phases, you know, the internal phase of trying to figure out what we were doing um, from scratch. Then um, a little bit later, starting out doing talk styles, what we were doing and engaging with people publicly and found that that was a good way of just testing the architecture, getting it discussed better. You learned much more about what we were doing by discussing it publicly. And then that turned into uh, more and more about things. Um, we started creating, once we created large amounts of the system, we internally decided that it would be a good idea to open source the platform. And I ended up effectively product managing this open source platform, so trying to corral the different pieces we needed to all be out there so that it, instead of a random collection of projects, which it is really, um, there was at least a theme about these pieces fitting together somewhat. Um, and on outbound engagement towards the end of my time at Netflix, and eventually I decided that you know, while I was doing this for Netflix's benefit, there was a bigger job to do, which was uh, given the platform of Battery Ventures, I can engage broadly with the entire industry and do it for sort of, to some extent, for the industry's benefit, was very closely aligned with what Battery Ventures wanted to do. So I've got a platform to make what was my side job of talking about what, what happened and training people and, and talking and getting to know people. That's become my day job, my main job. And the architecture work I used to, that was my main job, is now kind of my side job. And I do that mostly working with portfolio companies. You know, we, we get all startups that are scaling and they need help scaling, moving to cloud, uh, shrinking their AWS budget or something like that. And I act as usually a consultant to the CTO. So that's kind of my day, day job is to act as a very outbound technologist within a VC firm and less involved in the uh, sort of financial side of, of uh, deciding who gets how much money in the deal. Um, more into okay, whether the technology looks good in a deal and what we've done a deal, uh, helping the portfolio companies. Very the, interesting. The, yeah, the enterprise stuff, I'm actually doing much more now because a lot of big enterprises are interested in the, you know, the Netflix story and interested in the portfolio companies. So I'm spending a lot more time with CIOs of big enterprises and government departments and things like that. Um, and that's good for the VC firm because we find customers that we can use to validate ideas and we can also find what gaps they are finding in the market and come back and you know try and find portfolio companies to fit. So that's, that's my day job. It feels like uh, like the trend of DevOps in, in enterprises is really really kind of hit full steam or it's really hitting hard this year. Are you what are you seeing? Like are you seeing different trends or patterns in terms of enterprises or types of enterprises that are engaging in to figure this stuff out? Yeah, it's, I think more enterprises are doing it. Um, I kind of go to first principles. The, these, most of these things are tactics to achieve an end goal. I, I just did, um, I'm at um, OzCon in Portland, Oregon right now, and uh, the last two days I taught a workshop on microservices. And the way I subtitled it was why, what, and how to get there. You know, why, why is this interesting? What is it? And how, do you, how does the migration work? Right? But the why part is why I always start. 
And I, and it's funny, so my voice is a bit croaky because I just spent two days talking and teaching and talking. <laughs> and then last night there was some drinking as well. Um, didn't help. But um, the, the why part really comes down to business agility. And uh, going back to the DevOps Enterprise Summit um, from Nordstrom, they said, uh, we, start, we decided to optimize for uh, speed rather than cost. Right. Yeah. That, that that was the switch. Uh, that, you know, that operations switch. We need to optimize for agility and speed of, of getting stuff done rather than cost. And then there's this interesting side effect. If you're going fast enough, it's really spend months. You end up underrunning on cost, and you end up using smaller teams to get more done because you're going faster because you took friction out of the system. And when you try to optimize for efficiency, you quite often add friction. And you create something that looks efficient when you measure it locally, but you're creating additional cost elsewhere. And um, you know, just having a project that runs for longer, there's more meetings, right? So there's more wasted meeting time than if you collapse it and have fewer. So that's those kind of uh, counterintuitive things um, that I, I think that that's kind of the pitch to enterprises. Like, how can you be faster? And so I started doing talks about speeding up development and um, going faster and all those kinds of things. And then there are various tactics that help you do that. And they're all interrelated, but um, some of it comes down to the sort of organizational change, really from going from projects to products and going from a, the idea you have a team builds a project, throws it over the wall, goes to work on the next project, to something where you own a product in production. And so the team is this more, much more DevOps-oriented team that's building microservices, and they're self-serving what they're building, which is cloud. So this really pulls together microservices, cloud, agile, and lean, and all of these things into that's the out, those are tactics for achieving this operations where you've got everything organized in cells, which work independently and have APIs between themselves. So how does this idea of when you go to a CIO and you, you tell them of optimizing for cost is probably the wrong idea, but over and over and over again over the last, you know, well, probably since IT's been around, probably before my time, you know, it's always about cutting costs, cutting costs, IT as a cost center. And how does that tend to resonate with these leaders of large organizations when they're under financial pressure? They... Well, they, they are looking for saving money, but they've, they usually talk about they need to align with the business, right? And you stop being a cost center when you've become embedded in, the, uh, in these sort of um, product-based teams. You're then part of the, the operations as an API in the, that's being driven by it, and you can tie the value of what you're doing into the business. So now you've got a direct, you're part of the, the value chain. If you're doing value chain mapping, you're part of that value chain. So that's the alignment with the business. You can justify what you're doing against the, a specific piece of the, pro, of, of the business. And when you've got a cloud API in there, you can actually measure properly who's using what in an, in an easy way. So right. you know, if yeah. you're using a public cloud, you, get you can slice and dice the bill. If, if you're building your own cloud, it's still, it's the same thing. It's the same, you know, somebody has to go build the cloud and build APIs to it. Um, so I don't really care whether it's public or private. The point is it's self-service and you're moving the sort of responsibility back to the, um, to the teams to actually operate their own things. 
So you're really talking about getting getting rid of that kind of shared services model that IT was was headed down for for so many years and trying to consolidate everything under one big shared services group and instead embedding the technologists in the business units. Yeah, but it's also the the other thing I say is you know you you know if you, you what I ask people is how many meetings and tickets does it take to do a release to get if I'm in, <laughs> right. I have to get something into production, right? It doesn't matter how small or big it is. If you have to have, you know, four meetings and ten tickets, then you will tend to put a large chunk of work through that process. Uh, what you know, you've reached this sort of the end game when there are no meetings and no tickets and it's self-service, right? You just do it. You go, okay, this code's ready. You push a button and it does it. And the approach that some people have taken, Netflix is at the level now where most teams, you check code in, the code gets automatically built, automatically deployed. There is no further checks or balances or meetings. It's just that code will end up in production. The checking is all automated. You've got some test-driven development tests that make sure it works at all, and then you do canary-based testing, automated canary testing to prove that this new microservice is at least as good as the old one. Um, and it just takes over if it looks fine, right? And that takes, you know, it just flows through. It takes a day or two to go through the whole process and deploy globally. But that fully automated deploy process means that there's no one else involved. Now, this operations team then becomes the people that build the APIs that do that, right? And so you, don't, you stop thinking of development and operations and you start thinking of application teams and platform teams. And there are layers of platform. So... One layer of platform may be your public cloud vendor that provides a set of services that are generic. And then there's an internal platform team that takes those and adds the things that you need and combines them in a certain way. And then there's another platform team for the, the specific thing for, say, the personalization teams that Netflix have their own personalization platform. There's another platform for doing billing. And, um, and the billing system sort of sit above that. Right? So those different platforms are just getting more and more specific and at the end you have your business logic sitting on the sort of layers of layers of platforms but this sort of you could sort of say the people operating each of these platform teams are in some senses operators but they're just becoming more and more specific uh, application APIs. Adrian you made you made a point a few minutes back that I, I think actually is really really important I want to drill drill on a little bit you talked about the kind of how this this whole optimized for speed and you, you made the point about it being counterintuitive to folks that when you know things may look efficient or optimized at a localized level but when you really start to look broadly or across like the value chain they're not and when you optimize for speed you get this interesting kind of byproduct where cost also goes goes down I, I see this play out a lot. I think the counterintuitive point you made is is spot on. People don't intuitively get that. And any tips or tricks on how to how to get leaders o- over that hump where they actually they they intuitively understand that, or do they just have to to yeah. see it? It's really uh, the te- technically I think the word for this is externalities. Right, you're, you're externalizing your your costs when you over-optimize. And there's a bunch of examples of this in, in daily life. I think somewhere there's a, one of the states in America has a bunch of power stations near the state border so that all the, the smoke and acid rain goes to the next state over. Right? <laughs> 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 externalizing. 
<laughs> with the prevailing yeah. which blows the smoke to the guys next door so they don't, you know, they don't get it. That's, that's, that's kind of what's going on here, right? If you can externalize your, your costs or whatever to some other team, then you say, I'm running efficiently. But what you really need to do is, is get, the, get everything, um, you need to be more holistic on it. Yeah, and what was interesting, another point that you made that's kind of related is this idea of if you're going to want to try and do like small batch releases, right, which is kind of the the uh, holy grail of continuous delivery, right? You know, small batches releasing very quickly, re releasing very often. If your weight of your processes, and I think very few people start to look at this, uh, but the if the weight of the processes are so much that every time you want to do one of these small releases, the processes just become overwhelming to your organization, then there's no way in hell you're ever going to be able to get to this holy grail of, of continuous delivery. Yeah, it's the best size problem, right? Um, and if you look at um, Reinertsen's book, Principles of Product Development Flow, he talks about the importance of keeping batch size small. And as soon as you let one big project into your system, it will clog everything up for the small ones. So keep being a consistently small parts and batches is how you get flow. And uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting book to kind of decide, see how to do that. Yeah, it is a really, really interesting book. Uh, I'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, and Lean Enterprise is the one that I tell everybody to read that one. And um, the microservices book by Sam Newman. Um, I kind of, okay, if you read those two, you've got most of the things you need to kind of sort of move forward. I think the whole idea of, I mean, people have you know, just spent two days working with people trying to discuss some people different places, obviously, and we we're talking about the migration strategies. And one of them is to say, publish a metric uh, that says, this is how many tickets and meetings we have per release about the release. Not, not when something broke, but what is the standard flow for just getting code out. Right. Publish that metric, make it a graph, make it visible. It's just like you know, the visible ops kind of thing, right? And just push it up there, you know, put it, in, and everyone says, I need to go fast. Okay, this is why it's slow. And the thing, you, the change you want to make is going to add a meeting. No, let's not do that, right? And then go and find somebody that's willing to cut a meeting out and cut an approval out and go and look at, so how many you know, times does this step in the approval process actually have add value? And you go start arg arguing with people that you should remove these non-added value steps and say, okay, where can we add tooling so that some manual step turns into an API-driven step? And you can start measuring your progress, but by creating a, a, a the right metrics on an organization and publishing them, it usually gradually goes out and you're sort of embarrassing people into doing the right thing. Yeah. You have to be very careful with these. Like, don't publish number of bugs in a release because people will stop reporting bugs and they'll put them <laughs> on stickies. And I've seen organizations end up with a whole bug tracking system goes offline to get hidden so to make some manager you know, happy that their metrics are better, but the bugs actually didn't go away. Right? So you have to be very careful how you create these systemic feedback mechanisms. But um, yes. If you want to speed up a process, measuring how painful the process is and creating a few graphs or whatever that, that, that monitor that is, is a good way of doing it, I think. Yeah, and what I find really interesting is when you start to talk about these processes, what a lot of people will end up or a lot of organizations end up finding is that these processes were put in place to solve some sort of a problem and, and you, that may not necessarily be applicable anymore. So think of the yeah. fact of like in the United States, everybody has to now take off their shoes 
because there was this one time where this guy got through with something in his shoes. And so now everybody has to take off the shoes, but how many people are actually smuggling things in their shoes anymore? Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So it, it's kind of a band-aid to put on top of the issue instead of actually fixing the s- systemic issue in the first place. Yeah, so moving from security theater to... Uh, process yeah, theater. Process theater to some extent. Yeah, so you got to decide. If that's the outcome you want, then you can surface it, and that really helps. You can also then go to start targeting individual people. So you find the people that are most that most want to speed something up, and you start using them to as leverage against it, and then try and get this graph to move up in your weekly reports. You can dump it near the front of the report, so it goes further up the management chain. And people people are usually horrified by how much work there is to do something. So coming back to this idea about the the, the sort of grain size or the amount of um, the batch size of getting work done. The other, there's a couple of other things that I sort of talk about in my in my presentations. One of them is that a lot of these processes grew and end up looking like scar tissue. It's like if somebody did something bad, so you had a process step to not do it again. Exactly. And it ends up being being like the laws that you have in a country where they're so com- complex and actually contradictory that no one can actually follow them. Right. The processes of just living your life according to the laws of a country, it's actually too hard to do. And if you look at the differences between different countries, you can actually see which who did a bad thing in which country. Because there's a law against it. Right? There's a pollution knee-jerk reaction, because let's make a law against it. So the management knee-jerk reaction for a failed build is, let's, do a, let's have a review in the process. So the trick is to start ripping these things out and saying, you know, if something does something bad, you know, fire them. <laughs> Rather than create a process step, um, they say we trust everyone's judgment. So this is this is one of the things that's actually much harder to do is the cultural change to a high trust um, environment where you basically are, are putting making people you give people freedom and you give them responsibility and this responsibility trust judgment it becomes important and so, this is actually much harder to translate from Netflix to a larger organization. You can do it in a, in a small way, but it's it's one of the things that makes Netflix different to uh, most other organizations. This is a very sort of uh, high trust and, and high level of, of ability to rely on people's judgment. So you made an interesting point about bringing in high trust cultures and kind of trying to make that cultural shift to where people are more empowered in making these changes. Well, so we've seen this trend in the industry where the uh, when a data breach occurs or something like that, usually the person on the hook are executives. So as you go in and talk to CIOs, what are you kind of recommending to them uh, when you do talk about this idea of building a high trust culture and kind of what is their feedback when they might actually be the ones on the hook at the end of the day? What you've typically got is a system that was built um, you know, the development of the system didn't take security into account. Right? You have a system, and then your delivery of the system is we're going to wrap a security firewall around it, and I call it a security blanket approach. And I have this little image of Linus from, from Peanuts cartoon, right? <laughs> Sitting there sucking his thumb with the security blanket, and that is, that's kind of, okay, well, I've made it secure, and I'm just going to hope that I'm secure. But the development and operations split here is one where, you know, it's not my job to worry about security. That's a security specialist's job. I throw this thing over, and, but yeah, it requires you have all these ports open to just make it work at all. And security are trying to sort of patch it, this blanket around it. It's got a lot of holes in a blanket. You know, the analogy gets a bit stretched, but you understand. 
Yep. What, what I'm seeing is an awareness that the developers need to build systems that are inherently secure. You need to understand routes of trust and attack surface, and you need to build systems which encrypt all the data at rest with a variety of keys that have very you know, secure ways of acquiring the keys in the right way. Um, and if you start building systems like that, the, you don't actually need a firewall around it because there's no way in. There's no way you can get in. If you get the data, it's heavily encrypted. So those kind of systems, the, there's a, a movement called Rugged or Rugged DevOps that uh, Josh Corman's been out talking about and the Go to London conference that are, we've got a whole half day on, on what this means and how trying to teach developers to build more rugged systems. But if you think about that approach, you're basically saying that the developers have responsibility for building things more quickly, because that's sort of the agile bit. But because they own this, this service in production, which is kind of this microservices approach, you also own the efficiency of that service. The efficiency of the process who built it is lean, and, and the efficiency of running it in production is the sort of cost part of lean, right? So now you own running things more cheaply, and that cost is sort of passed directly back to the team that owns the microservice. And then you also own the security and the ruggedness. Um, and the, your build system has you know, gauntlet running penetration tests automatically and as part of your tests. You're right. not just sort of testing that it works. You're, you know, the, there's an automatic pen test built into your build pipeline. So those kinds of tools are the things that we're talking about building in. And then you've got something that is much more secure and it's got a much smaller attack surface. And the responsibility is that is the team owns this service. So it's, it's not, it, again, there's this move from a project-based thing where I throw it over the wall at somebody else's problem to a product-based model where you own this service in production. And you can call that microservices, if you like, or, or whatever. But the point is that you have ownership, which means if there is a breach, you're right there. You still own it. You get to fix it. It's the end of um, your the person, you know, the developers are on call, and that's for any kind of outage or breach or whatever. Now, they still right. have to have some centralized skills. So there's a platform team building platform APIs and things that you build your stuff out of. And there's a security platform as well. And that security platform, you know, the way Netflix does it, as soon as something turns up in production, the fact that something turns up is actually notified across to the security team through some tooling, and they run a penetration test it on it. That's just it's the trust but verify. So the point here is that you, you have this built more trust in the organization and then you're verifying that things work, right? And if it fails the pen test, they'll actually sort of shoot it down and say, no, you can't release this version. So sure. it becomes part of this deployment pipeline is you have to pass through the verification stage. So that's yeah, one I part think, of it. Yeah. But I think the key to this, um, I think one of the key ingredients to that is in it's a theme that I'm already, you know, I think has already come up in our podcast today. It's the fact that they're taking accountability and, and the model that most companies have been in security that the developers or the, the people that, that build the products don't, aren't necessarily accountable to the security. And there's tends to be separate services and separate kind of bolt on functions for that. And so, yeah, I agree. I think as, as you shift to that model and you align the accountability, and that's clear that people, you own it, you build it, you run it, you own the security, you own the performance, you own the health, you own, you own all of it. I, I, I'm hopeful that that's going to move the needle on security. And, and when we think about it in, the, in terms of how security even ties up into the DevOps conversation. 
Yeah, it's actually yeah. really interesting because if you look at it, all you're doing is it's just another form of a test that you run in either your infrastructure code or your actual code. And so, you know, the security scans or the security pieces of it become another unit test or a un another functional test that's ran as part of the release pipeline. And so uh, it, it just increases the feedback loop even more when that is part of, of how things get shipped out into production, right? When security is yeah. part of that release pipeline, which is kind of, I see it as more of like the next evolution instead of this whole DevSecOps or SecDevOps or rugged DevOps. It's just, we're adding in more feedback loops. We're adding in more knowledge of what's actually yeah. going on in the system. So this is the you know, systemically applying the pain to the people that uh, created the problem, right? That that's a very strong feedback. And what happens is it turns out developers can build reliable systems that deploy quickly and are rugged and are cheap to run. It's just that they, they have to be on the hook to do that. Um, but they don't if they don't feel it's their responsibility, then they won't do that. There's another side of this though, which is. Um, there's usually this separation of concerns um, thing that people get from the compliance and audit side. And to get through audit within this model, the concerns are separated differently. You have separate teams of developers that own different things. So there's a team at Netflix of developers who deploy the SOX compliance system and another team working in yet another different AWS account deploying the PCI compliance systems. And the separation is between those teams rather than between the generic pool of developers and the operations people. But then there's this compensating control that there's very high auditability when you have a cloud-based deployment. You can see every API call, you can see every configuration change, and you have a full audit log of everything that ever happened. You can see, when you use a, you know, a Bastion server, you can see every time somebody logged in through the Bastion, what they did. Um, the security groups are set up to prevent you from sort of rummaging around inside the systems in production and to just track everything that goes through the basket. So in that kind of environment, you're in a 100% audit state. And the way some people do security audits is like for you know, one week in the year when the auditor's turning up, quick, make everything look nice and shiny, uh, get through the audit, maybe buy the audit a couple of drinks and hope that he passes it to you. Um, Instead, what you're doing is you're creating a system that is systemically audited all the time. And anytime anything goes wrong, you can run it. Now you can run your security tooling can be looking at these audit trails, AWS Cloud Trail and there's other systems for doing it. And you can actually see something unusual happening and actually track you know, bad things as they come into your system because everything is so tightly auditable at the API level. And that's one of the benefits of getting the annual processes out of the system. So this all sounds really, really good, right? Like as if I was a CIO and you're telling me this, I'd be like, this sounds like really amazing. But typically what Ross and I hear, and we're both from the Midwest, um, typically what we end up hearing is this whole, uh, well, that's good for Netflix and they're a West Coast company and they're a unicorn out there in Silicon Valley. So what are CIOs starting to tell you about how they want to become maybe the Netflix of their industry? And, and is our attitude starting to change towards those unicorns and, and how much learnings are these kind of traditional organizations looking to take away from these unicorns now? Yeah, I think, I think it is. Um, I've been surprised. I got a CIO of one of the sort of biggest oldest banks um, sort of reach out to me and say, you know, can we visit the Bay Area, a team, the exec team, we're going to 
talking to a bunch of different companies that like to have a meeting. Um, so, okay. Um, and then he wanted to have a phone call. And it's like, this is you know, not normal for people at that level to be chatting to me. You know, so it felt a bit strange or something. And you know, he, apparently he'd been you know, downloading the slide decks and studying it and trying to figure out how to migrate the organization. I uh, spent so a couple of hours with the exec team. And a lot of them are in the middle of a lot of different transitions. Um, they're, they're worried that they, they need to move faster or they're going to be disrupted by a Netflix or an Uber or whatever of their industry. So they see that as an existential threat that's making them get out and do something. Right? And then they're, they're trying to consume the various new tools they can use to do that. And one of them is cloud. And they're going, well, you know, is my bank better than this other bank because I run my data centers better? And they're kind of going, well, not really. Um, it's not a, really a core competency. So this idea that the public cloud isn't an evil thing, it's something that is actually just, it's a commodity that you should be using. So people are getting over that, that piece and they're starting to, you know, I'm seeing quite a few people now really starting to deploy out on there. I mean, at, today at, um, at OzCon, we have Capital One here and they've been quite public about this. Um, and I've spent quite a lot of time with them and they opened their DevOps dashboard. You should probably get uh, Topo or somebody on from, from Capital One to talk about the DevOps dashboard they've built. They've got their own open source project now, and they've fought through all this army of lawyers to get that approved that they can put it out there. And that's, a, that's the kind of challenges we're seeing. So definitely seeing financial companies starting to move in this direction. Um, some other non-West Coast companies that I've worked with um, in all kinds of industries. So there's definitely interest in doing this. And the so going back to the grain size problem, just briefly, the, the, the other thing is tooling. So if, you, if your process for getting something done takes a long time, you get a lot of stuff in it, and you always end up with this. If you ask the people, have you ever had QA ask for more time to test a release? Right? And everyone says, yes, we've always seen that. But if, you, if they need more time, you should put less in the release. It says you should actually half the amount of stuff per release and do your releases twice as often. Because then it's actually simpler. And you end up with one thing per release. A release is a single change to a single microservice. You end up, that's the end goal. We're only changing one thing at a time. Things become very debuggable and very easy to isolate. And the, change, your, your, the size of change is tiny. But then you look at the tooling for this and you say, well, Docker has, has turned up as a piece of tooling and people are trying to understand how to use it. Docker takes seconds to, you know, take a build of a microservice and deploy it. So we're taking something that takes seconds to do. If you use, you know, within a minute, you can easily do a complete Docker deploy to test to test production. And why would you do something that takes a minute, you know, every two or three weeks? You could be doing it, you know, n times a day. And that's the sort of the, t the piece of the tooling side that the, it doesn't make sense to do something that lightweight that infrequently. You know, a lot of our listeners are actually IT leaders at various companies, and, and I think a lot of people are trying to figure out how to make this shift. What advice would you have for those listeners? Like, if you're sitting in a traditional enterprise and you're trying to figure out how to move from optimizing for cost to optimize for speed, what would be, like, the, the top few things you would tell, tell people to really focus on and go after? I think that there's, there's a... 
I kind of mentioned a few of them already. One is make your pain visible, right? You know, mm-hmm. take the time it takes and how, you know, measure how, much, how long it takes to get something done. Surface those metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, then this move from project to product ownership. And that's sort of the real transformation, the microservices transformation. Um, it's using Conway's law to help you reorganize things. Um, and that was that Netflix was always organized as a based organization where people owned products. We actually had trouble fitting that to monolithic deployment. So microservices were naturally. But what you've what you got is sort of installing monolithic systems and then bring them the wall. You have to change the way the teams are set up. So somewhere in this path there's a reorg. What I usually tell people is, you know, go find a YouTube channel for the Dubs and press on it and just watch the you know, what knows from the episode, what the target episode, watch um, the, uh, the Mark Schwartz, the mm-hmm. CEO of, the, of DCIS, right? Just take, just work your way through two of these and they're inspirational and they show people. So just, you know, go look at everything that they did and if that's inspiring, you know, come to the next DevOps Enterprise Summit. Um, it's a, it's, that's the, you know, it was an excellent idea to get a very, and use a focus. I was on the program committee for it, and at one point we were looking at we had, you know, 40 or 50 slots fill, and we had about 200 applications. And one of the things I said, let's just get rid of all the vendors. Let's just make this all the end user stories. That was a the good decision. Still, the vendors are still going to turn up because they're desperate to be part of this. They aren't going to not turn up and not sponsor it. But everyone wants to hear what are the end stories. And it was, it was, we were trying to collapse it. That was one of the ways we sort of collapsed it and made it very focused on the stories because that was the original idea. But when you do a CFP, you get piles of stuff from different people. Kind of leaving us with some closing thoughts. Um, if you're looking out a few years, what do you think um, of the trending, um, the big trending thing will be from a tech, perspe- tech perspective? And where do you think DevOps adoption in the enterprise is going to be? I know I've seen some Gartner numbers and... Uh, and take them sometimes with a grain of salt, but but what is your perspective and what's your feeling that you're seeing in the industry? I think it's moving industry by industry, and financial services is on the march. All of the people I talk to there are somewhere in there getting their heads around doing it. Um, Government has started moving. Um, The UK government a few years ago, the US government, uh, governments around the world are figuring out how to do this. These are the big organizations with, that have a huge spend um, on, on IT. And then I think the organizations that are still sort of lagging a bit are probably mostly in, in the um, medical and healthcare industries. They're, they're still lagging a bit. So I think we're, we're starting to see you know, industry by industry these things get knocked down. And uh, it's a more a matter of kind of, okay, we've figured out the pattern in this industry now. What do we do here? How do we deal with it in healthcare? How do we deal with it in whatever the next industry is? So that's what I see happening right now. So where are you headed next? You're in Portland right now for OSCON. Where can people possibly find you uh, next? And how can people get a hold of you either on Twitter or otherwise? um, On Twitter, I'm Adrian Co. Adrian Co. So you don't have to try and spell Cockcroft. It's an optimization there. Um, and uh, Battery Ventures is at battery.com, so you can just find me at adrianco at battery.com if you want to email me. Um, we have some blogs and things at, at Battery. Um, 
where am I next? There's a, I'm going to be at, there's a, the Pacific Crest Summit. That's a bit more of a private thing. Um, but there's quite a few industry people there. Then I'm going to be at LinuxCon in Seattle at the end of August for uh, the MesosCon part of that. Um, and then the uh, Go to London conference in September where I'm leading the program committee. So I'm sort of trying to get everybody to go to that. So if you're anywhere in Europe and you want to go learn how to be agile, lean, and rugged, um, Go to London in mid September is the, the main thing I'm focused on right now. Great. So as always, you can find out more about our podcast at goatcan.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at goatcan. Uh, Ross, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, you can get a hold of me at, at Ross Clanton. I didn't do the uh, the optimization that Adrian did, so it's, it's not Ross CL. <laughs> and as always, you, you can reach me on Twitter at mfdii. Ask me what that means someday if you ever run across me. Once again, Adrian, thanks so much for being on and uh, sharing your experiences, especially over the last year and a half as you've started to talk to these large enterprises. Thanks very much. So as always, uh, remember, be the goat. Be the goat. Oh, you're so late on that one, Ross. Come on. <laughs>